0: Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour. And today we have a long-awaited Ask Dr. E. We haven't released an Ask Dr. E since May of 2020. And what? we've got, I know it's been a long time. I guess this COVID thing, huh? We've got all kinds of questions. And yesterday I did something crazy and I just threw up on Instagram on your account and mine and said, hey, what do you want to hear from Michael? <laughs> and so we thought we would do an Ask Dr. E Instagram edition, kind of lightning round. We'll see how lightning round you can Insta answers. Okay. Insta answers to Instagram posts. Oh, wait.
1: No, I resemble that.
0: <laughs> so we'll see how much we can cover <laughs> in the next 45-ish minutes. All right, let's just start from the top, Dad. Can prayer change God's mind or His plans for you?
1: Simple answer, no. We do have passages where Moses is interceding on Israel's behalf, and we have that complicated and technically a difficult passage where God changed his mind. Actually, the word is repented, and repent is probably a better thought process because repent means to turn from one thing to another. I don't think our appealing to God will change the sovereign will of God. I do think he responds to his children. But I think in some respects, it's the wrong question. If I ask and beg and plead and do good works, can I somehow change God's outcome? No. Will God be merciful and compassionate to me when I don't deserve it? Perhaps. So I think the short answer is prayer teaches us more about our relationship with God than as a question and answer exchange. I think too many people come to pray to God to get an outcome mm-hmm. as opposed to a relationship with the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. We can look at the so-called Lord's Prayer, better entitled the Disciples Prayer. How do you pray? And it's a wonderful setup because they had seen John's disciples praying, and their acknowledgement, the Lord teaches to pray like John's disciples, is quite revealing because to me it exposes they had the same trouble a lot of us do. We don't mm-hmm. seem to pray well. And any of those who've listened to me for a while know I had this, you know, aggravation with meaningless repetition when it comes to prayer. We're all guilty of saying the same thing every time we ask. And it's like, you know, a checkbook register. If I pray for this, maybe this outcome will happen. So on the one hand, prayer, we are told to pray, to give thanksgiving in all things. Many, many scriptures about prayer The fact that Jesus slipped away to pray all night before he chose the disciples, as was his habit, Luke tells us, he got away to pray. So prayer is a discipline. It's a relationship. We need to remove the idea that it's a question and answer. I ask God something and he answers my prayer. Mm -hmm. He may respond to our prayer, but I don't think you and I praying fervently or diligently or fasting can change God's mind in the way that sounds. So...
0: What do we do with the parable? I think she's a widow and it's the like corrupt judge the and persistent widow. The, the, yeah, yeah, this kind of idea of like if she's a squeaky wheel and a mm-hmm. corrupt judge responds how much you know better of a father am I?
1: Right. So that parable is one of the most egregiously mistaught parables. Great. It sounds like if you're a <laughs> persistent person yes. and you nag the judge to death, eventually he will want. do what you want him to do. For the first century Jewish ear to hear that story, when Jesus first set it up, so in Luke 18, we have this parable that Jesus gives about what typically is you know explained as a nagging widow. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. When they hear that, they've got a picture of an unrighteous, godless judge. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God or respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So typically taught, nag God, he'll eventually give you what you want. When the first audience heard that, they would have covered their mouth with their hands when they heard the expression that a widow came to him and he wouldn't act for her good. Hmm. Of course a judge, even a godless judge would do that. I mean this is a matter of fact. She has a legitimate need. She's a widow and a judge hearing, of course he would act to protect her. That's the character of God. Not nagging God. So what's God like? God will bring justice. For those who cry to him. He's not saying God's gonna answer her prayer, God's gonna give her, you know, money that she needs or whatever, that God is going to give justice to the elect. Cry out to him. So we need to parse it carefully. And then, of course, the crescendo is that justice will be seen when the Son of Man comes. And so he's looking for faith. He's looking for faithful people. And so the parable really is teaching not a persistent nagging of God, but we have a good God who's a good judge and he will bring justice for his people at the proper time.
0: Okay. So, speaking of prayer, another question that came in was that the Bible talks about having faith when you pray. And I think about James chapter one about, you know, if we have doubts, it's like Mm -hmm. being tossed around by the sea. But the question is, what if you don't believe God will answer you? I mean, we're supposed to have faith, but we all sometimes I think struggle with faith that God hears us, that he's going to Mm -hmm. respond. Sure. What do we do with sure, that?
1: Sure, sure. Well, a couple of things. Number one, our faith is not contingent upon God responding to a prayer. It's not an exercise of faith. If I can, if I can, if I can. The little engine that could is bad theology. Number two, acknowledge. I don't know any Christian who would not say, well, maybe some would lie. I think most Christians would say, I struggle sometimes believing God hears me. Mm -hmm. I struggle to think that God cares. Mm -hmm. I struggle that God hears my prayers all the time. Why? Because we don't get outcomes that we would like God to do. So it goes back to the former answer I tried to give is a relationship with God is more at hand than If then, if I do this, then God will do that. Mm -hmm. I love, and I've talked about this many times, Mark 9, the man who the disciples can't help his demon-possessed son. Christ comes down, and the Lord is pretty hard on the audience. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long must I be with you? He brings the boy to him. How long has he done this? The father's interaction from childhood, he said. It is often throwing him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I love, love, love the guy's response. I believe, but I have a hard time. Yeah. I want to believe you can do this for me, yeah. but I have doubts. And Christ's response He rebukes the unclean spirit. He casts him out, and that's the end of the story. The boy is no longer demon-possessed. Christ raises him up. And then there's an ancillary lesson there with the disciples in their own relationship. But the point of the story that's compelling to me is this guy is entreating God to do something for him, and he doesn't have, quote, enough, close quote, faith. Mm. And so we have to be careful quantifying faith. Theology is a system of trusting God at his word. Not our experience. We're all going to experience doubt in our Christian life. We're going to experience doubt in God, quote, coming through or working for us. The objective of the Christian life is to be faithful no matter our experience, yeah. to be faithful no matter what God does or does not do the way we would like him to act. So to me, you know, I pray for things that never happen too. And I continue to pray for people that I love, people that I know, people that are in bad situations, making bad decisions, people who might be sick. And I hope God will be kind and merciful and administer mercy to people. But sometimes people don't respond. So faith is not somehow puppeteering God upside down. Faith is not contingent upon what we do and that if I do this, then God will do that. Mm -hmm. Faith is a relationship. Do I trust him? Not based on my doing, but do I trust him at his word and then I can rest in the outcome, whether it goes to, you know, what I would like or not. But I would say simply keep praying. Yeah. You know, keep keeping on because it's a relationship with God, not simply putting the money in the machine and pulling the knob and getting out, you know, a coke from the dispensary. Mm-hmm.
0: Philippians four, six and seven comes to mind for me as we're talking about this. Like I looked at that as I think one of the purposes of prayer is to help us not be anxious. The verses do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then the peace of God, which Mm -hmm. transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I write that verse in every book that I sign my college girl survival guide. That's the verse that I write because there's a ton of things that college girls have to be anxious about and worry about. And that verse to me is a reminder that my prayer life, I think one huge benefit of it is it lessens my anxiety and fear and worries because I'm focused on the one who's in charge and not...
1: (laughs) You're exactly right. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension. Yeah. I've written a prayer in my little book on prayer called a non-anxious presence and that prayer that i wrote and prayed for a long time was if god answers this prayer quote unquote he and i will be the only one that knows it Hmm. because i'll be able to have a non-anxious presence in situations in life where i can tend to be anxious or have anxiety Hmm. it's exactly what philippians 4 7 is saying as you pointed out and so when we encounter these you know dilemmas where God's not answering my prayer, where I don't feel like he's hearing me, where I don't believe in him, that's probably contra to having peace. Mm -hmm. That's probably contrary Mm -hmm. to resting in him. If you can face your difficulties with confident assurance in Christ, that's a pretty good indication that you're growing as a disciple and you're growing in his word and your relationship with him.
0: Okay, the last thing I want to throw to you on the topic of prayer, and then we'll move on, is Paul's the thorn in his flesh. And he says, Mm -hmm. three times I asked him, and three times he replied to me, my grace is sufficient. What do we take from that that helps us understand prayer?
1: It's a great observation and a great sequence of passages to understand. Even from the apostle, he's not going to you know, perform, so to speak. I also think we have to have a long view of life and suffering. Jesus Christ only went to glory through suffering. In fact, according to the gospel theology, there is no glorification apart from suffering. I hate suffering. I don't know any human who loves it, but I think uh, part of the Christian life is learning to suffer well and to endure the sufferings of physical, of hardship, disappointments in life, children that break our hearts, all of these things, and to endure that with a faithfulness. And Paul got to the point where he said, okay, this is what I got, and I'm going to face this difficulty by the grace of God. And we've talked about our friends, the trafficants, endlessly on our broadcasts, but they exemplify more than anybody we might know a family Who's been through so many difficulties and by grace they are sustained mm-hmm. they've been through surgeries and they've made progress and they're doing well in many respects but they will always have you know health concerns mm-hmm. and many people live in the same situation so grace sustains us always comes back to God's grace sustaining us because we can't do it in the flesh. Mm.
0: Okay, another question that came in, actually, from a dear friend of mine in college. She said, how will rewards and leadership work in heaven?
1: Great question. This is a pretty big topic. There are lots of different rewards in heaven. But specifically, I want to go to one passage. So specifically, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which talks about some aspects of reward. And let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Yet he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Dr. Stanley Toussaint, who is with the Lord now, Preached a wonderful, famous sermon on many occasions about paid in full. And he would tell this elaborate illustration about, you know, the wood, hay, and stubble versus gold, silver, and precious stones. And that this is how we live. Our work is a gift to God, it's a response to God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We're prepared beforehand that we should walk in these works. So we do these works, and yet God's refining fire is going to test them, and whatever remains that will be our reward. So we can do good things that look good on the outside with wrong motivations, with wrong intentions, and they'll be consumed. We can also do things, let's say, for the right reasons and the right way is, you know, humbly, and God will reward us. Now, the bigger question to me is, what do you do with the reward? And I can't give you proof text and you know definitive dogmatic theology, I think there's only one thing to do with a reward in heaven. If we receive crowns, which is one of the texts that gives us an image of we receive crowns for rewards, and you and I see Christ and we've got a reward from him, I have an inclination, not new with me, that you're going to give that crown and throw it at Jesus' feet. And that, of course, the band casting crowns. So ergo, our works, it's hard to determine the nature of them, God will. I hope that, you know, what I've done for Christ and for others, or what you do for Christ and others will be rewarded. I think we give those back. Now, when it comes to leadership and sort of a hierarchy in heaven, I think with Christ as head, Christ as Messiah, I don't think there's going to be any roles for leaders in heaven. We might envision a delegated system of the rebuilding of the earth and a kingdom living where God, you know, because if I'm tying your question together, you were given a reward, ergo you're given responsibility in heaven. If we want to take that metaphor and stretch it that far, that certain people might be in leadership situations. I have a hard time with the view of hierarchical you know, leadership and organization on earth because Christ will be king, Christ will be present, Christ will be sovereign, there'll be no sin nature, we'll be serving him. So uh, reward will differentiate eternally. In some respect, we can't measure. I don't think there'll be a comparison of, you know, he got more rewards than me or I didn't get as many as him or her. And I think being in Christ's presence will be so overwhelming for the believer that how we view reward, accolade, role, leadership in, in life will be erased. Because heaven will be such a different experience with Christ in a new earth, a new heaven, a new reality.
0: Okay. It's fascinating how some people never think about heaven and some people think and read all the things they can get their hands on and (laughs) everything in between. It always intrigues me. A couple Old Testament questions for you. Number one, broad picture. Why does God seem to be so different in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? You think about, and specifically the person who wrote and said, like, why does God kill so much in the Old Testament? I mean, <laughs> but you think about the flood, you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, you think about all the times God instructed the nation Israel to annihilate another people group. And then all of a sudden we fast forward and there's Jesus who says, you know, if you hate your brother, you might as well have murdered him. They seem very different.
1: Mm-hmm. Great questions. And you know this is an area that takes a little bit of time and study. Let's first of all talk about a theocracy. God chose the nation Israel as his people. Those who were enemies of God's people were also enemies of God. So surrounding nations, let's take the Amalekites, they were perennial enemies, they would always be a destructive force to Israel. And God knew this. And so when he instructs them to destroy the Amalekites, well, that's genocide. Well, we have a theocracy. The government is not separated by God, like we have in America, and we have God, and we have three branches of a government and so forth. No, God was the government. And so this monotheistic theocracy, this is the law. This is how I want you to do things. I have to say this carefully. God knew that certain people would always be unrepentant and hate his people and therefore hate him. Hmm. And so in a way, I can't explain humanly to satisfy our emotions. God, the sovereign creator of the universe, knew that these people groups would always be haters of Israel, therefore haters of Yahweh Elohim, therefore destructive to God's people. So he's protecting his people. When we talk about annihilation, there's really only a number. It's not like as pervasive as it sounds. But Israel itself, of course, the monarchy will fail, and it will become a divided kingdom. And across the 38 kings, if memory serves, most of them are evil and do evil in the sight of the Lord. So the monarchy fails. The theocracy, they didn't obey God. And so they're tossed into civil war. So there is a lot of war and bloodshed in the Old Testament. Don't want to dismiss that. But we have to see the character of God is not capricious. He doesn't enjoy seeing people die. He gives them every opportunity to repent. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, the psalmist tells us. So there's a tension between saying, yes, God ordered them to destroy people groups. And I have to run to the conclusion theologically They hated God. They hated God's people. They would always be an irritation. They would always lead them into idolatry and away from Yahweh. And those were the people groups he said that they needed to defeat and destroy and to occupy the land. When Christ comes on the scene, the monarchy is failed. The judges have failed. All of Old Testament history is a failure because they didn't follow the theocratic I'm the Lord, your God, you don't need a king. And so man's invention of government, if you will, makes matters much worse. By the time we come to Christ's day, we're no longer, it's not a Jewish theocracy. It's a goyim, it's the world, it's ethnos. And Christ comes this first time not to judge, but to bring the offer of salvation. Now, if you want to fast forward, when Christ comes the next time, there's going to be a lot more blood. A lot more warring, a lot more decisions where people who hate God, who hate Jesus Christ in this case, who want to destroy what Jesus stands for, who he is, the only one to offer salvation, by the way. So they're trying to kill God's son again, we might argue, and he'll stop it. So there will be bloodshed, literally, in what I would you know, call the millennial reign. There'll be a time where, you know, they will assemble to try to fight against Christ. There'll be no fight really, but they will assemble to try to fight against him and people will die. People will be martyred for their faith. So yeah, it's an unfortunate thing. Our sensibilities don't like it, but scripture teaches it.
0: What do you do with, I mean, I hear you saying, you know, future judgment, bloodshed, people that are enemies and hate God, but you and I, we all know a ton of people who are, sweet, kind, precious people who we love that do not know the Lord, have not chosen to follow him, obey him, but they're not, you know, it doesn't feel like they would be leading the crusade to conquer the returning king.
1: If we're not with him, we're against him. And all of mankind is on a freight train headed to hell with no handbrake. And we all deserve death the one righteous thing that is fair would be for God to send us all to hell. The fact that he offers salvation and by faith we can embrace that salvation is the miracle of miracles. And he only accomplished that through his own death, burial, and resurrection. So it's hard stuff. Again, our sensibilities, and we have glossed into a you know loving and fair and kind and merciful. Right,
0: because it doesn't seem like a loving God would predestined us to hell.
1: Well, now you're in a double double <laughs> presentation. So, you know, and, and I knew and, what I was saying. <laughs> well, yeah, and there's a lot of people that hold that view, and intellectually. It's a simple view to hold. I don't mean that you know cavalier. It's simple to say God predestined some to heaven and predestined some to hell. And if you take a couple of passages on their own, Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. Yeah. Paul in Romans 9, the potter makes one vessel for honor and one for dishonor. Who are you, a man who answers back to God? I mean, there's a lot of places yeah. we could look at. And that's an intellectually easy position to take. I prefer that the offer is universal. Whosoever will... I'll be lifted up, which is probably a double entendre. I'm going to be lifted up as Messiah. I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. I'll be lifted up. I'll draw all men to me, but that doesn't mean all are going to embrace him. Mm-hmm. His whole intent was for us to trust Christ, to believe in him, but people are sinful and selfish. So all of mankind is headed to hell. The fact that any are saved is the true miracle, the true amazement, and our view of good people of kind people, of loving people, does not take away the sin condition, that all of us fall short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous, no, not even one. All of us like sheep have turned astray. So the hard reality of theology is we all deserve hell. The wonderful reality of theology is that the offer of salvation is, I believe, universal, that any and all can respond to Jesus Christ. And my friends who hold to double predestination or, you know, they define limited atonement and really parse election down in a way that, again, intellectually, I can see why they get there. But from a broader theological viewpoint, I don't think it's fair to the text to say that he predestines people to hell. That's determinism, Yeah, that God is sending people to hell. No. People are depraved. People have a sin nature, and they are going to hell because of sin, their own sin, not because God is sending them to hell.
0: Okay, maybe a more fun, lighter Old Testament question. (laughs) Why did God give Israel so many weird, specific laws, like not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk?
1: Number one, I would say they're not weird. I would say context. (laughs) They're weird to us. Yeah, because we don't know our history, and sometimes we don't know. The details. Some of this is complicated. You often hear about the law as a signpost. You know, don't drive over 70 miles an hour because you might endanger yourself and others. That's a good thing. So I'm going to drive 80. I'm going to choose to break the law. There's something in the core of man that is prone to break the law. Laws are moral guardrails. So when they say don't drive over 70 or wear a seatbelt or wear a mask, goodness gracious, you know, these are moral guardrails guardrails. They're good for your life. We break them. We may or may not have consequences. When it comes to don't boil a kid in its mother's milk, more than likely there is an imagery there. It's just unconscionable to have a veal, a baby calf, and kill the mother and use the mother's milk to cook the baby in. That's just unconscionable. We say inhumane, but they're not humans. It's inhumane to do such things. So the other thing about the law, it separated the Jew from the Gentile populations around them, which, by the way, were all idolatrous. Molech is child sacrifice to the god Chemosh. The Asherah and the high poles and the high places scripture talks about, the Asherim, these were cultic Sexual, promiscuous forms of, quote, worship. So, idolatry was so rampant in the ancient world, God's people were to be different. And so, the problem with the law became it was impossible to, quote, manage. And when you looked at the law, not as these moral guardrails, but I have to do the law to be good, that's when it became complicated. David writes, I love God's law. Hmm. When you and I read the Bible, I hope Christians say, I love the Word. I love the study of the gospel. I love the Bible. That's how they viewed, quote, the law. So when it's cumbersome or complicated, that's more a reflection on we don't know the history of the Old Testament. We don't know the history of the Jew. I remember, and I think i shared this before, Dr. Alan Ross was one of my professors at seminary, taught Hebrew, brilliant, scary, brilliant man. He wrote a book, Holy to the Lord. It's a commentary on the book of Leviticus. Nine out of 10 Christians read through the Bible and they skim through Leviticus and they go, this is a terrible, boring, repetitive book. I took Dr. Ross's commentary, Holy to the Lord, and I spent a year studying Leviticus and the insights that a Hebrew and Jewish history person can bring to the text. Some of them are still difficult, you know, not to intermix clothing, Well, that was an illustration, but it was also practical. Mm -hmm. So we need to be kind to the law and say, God's sovereign. He was wise beyond human comprehension and submission to the law. I mean, think of a child being told, brush your teeth or you're going to have cavities. What child likes to brush their teeth? None. (laughs) That's why you buy $100 toothbrushes that look like some cartoon character and you give them flavored toothpaste and they brush their teeth for five seconds and spit it out. They're not brushing their teeth. They don't understand if I don't have good dental hygiene as a child, it's going to affect my teeth when I am a teenager, when I really want to have pretty teeth. The law is not unlike that. We have God's word. We don't understand the ramifications of obeying and submitting, even when it doesn't seem to make a difference or make sense. Hmm.
0: Okay, final question for today's episode. Jesus says, I am with you always. So why in dire situations, why doesn't he at least once show up hmm. corporally? Hmm.
1: Well, he did show up once corporally, and he saw the sin condition. We have this picture of God did not come through for me when. Yeah. And that is a dilemma for far too many fine Christian men and women. I prayed. My mother had cancer. My daughter had cancer. My son was in a car accident on life support. My child died after five days being born. And why didn't God come through? We prayed. We fasted. We had hundreds of people. There are a lot of stories like that. The problem with that critical theology is we don't understand the sin condition. We are fallen creatures in a fallen context. Bad things happen to us. How we respond by faith is the issue, not God solving our problem. Mm -hmm. You're always going to have problems. You heard me say this 100 times. Lazarus was an object lesson, and he got a bad rap. Lazarus is dead and on his way to heaven. He's in Paradiso, probably. And God resurrects him. He's got to live and then die again. That's a ripoff to me. I mean, goodness gracious, he was going to be in heaven in the presence of the saints. No, I got to go back and live a few more years and die again. The miracles were to demonstrate God's power over the thing that man feared most. Hmm. If all he did was perform miracles, we would just need one more miracle. You got to show up for me because this guy broke my heart. You got to show up for me because I lost my job. You got to show up for me for it, fill in a blank. It's a very parochial way of looking at the Christian life. God is present with the disciples when he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to be with you, enabling you to carry out the ministry I gave you to make disciples of all nations. He didn't say to bail you out of every problem. Mm. And all we got to do is look at the New Testament, the record of Acts of Stephen is stoned to death. Legend tells us that most of the apostles died a martyr or horrible death. Paul's imprisoned for a bulk of his life ministry. Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, we call it. All these died without receiving the promises given to them. So our theology needs to align with the scripture, not why didn't God come through. I had... At least a dozen times, very powerful, deep conversations with people. I can remember one whose mother died, and this young woman was convinced, convinced that God was going to save her mother from cancer. And as an adult woman today, still has issues that God, quote, did not come through for me. Unfortunately, as heartbreaking as it is, it's bad theology. Good theology aligns with what the Word teaches us, what the Spirit helps us understand and submit to, how we walk through this broken life. I mean, after all, if God was going to come through every problem, we wouldn't have any problems. Yeah. And so he's more interested in our faithfulness than simply remedying our current situation.
0: You often say, this life at best is a clean bus station land us there expound on that more and well if you
1: haven't ridden the bus lately (laughs) you don't understand the metaphor but years and years ago before you know when bus travel was cheaper than air travel I traveled and I went to Colorado backpacked and I took buses from Texas to Colorado and bus stations are terrible you know they're dirty they're nasty the seats are broken uncomfortable the restrooms are terrible and so what we do is we try to make life a better bus station we try to make it a little more comfortable waiting on the next bus and we work so hard to make earth heaven And I don't think that's the objective. I think recognizing, you know, the Admirals Club is better than being seated down, you know, with the general population with a thousand people trying to get on a plane. But you know what? I'd still rather be at home than at the Admirals Club. Yeah. So this life at best is a way station. And so we're trying to live faithfully in that condition. And if it's a clean bus station, that's a pretty good context <laughs> for me. I'd be comfortable in a clean, comfortable bus station, but it still ain't heaven. Yeah, It's just a depot waiting. So life is a series of transitions of these bus stops and waiting to board the plane. And don't you love it when the cameras come into an airport? Of course, we don't see it right now with COVID, but... Prior to COVID, you know, a storm comes through and there's hundreds of people laying on the floor and on these airports chairs are like torture chambers. <laughs> Why can't they put more comfortable seating in an airport waiting lounge? You know, those things are expensive. Why can't they make them a little more comfortable? You can't even lay down on them. The armchair, I mean, they don't they're want ter- you to. all these people are miserable. They'd rather be anywhere but in that airport waiting for two or three days, you know, to get on a plane. What a great picture of life. And so we're trying to make that environment better. Yeah. And the reality is, this is not our home.
0: All right. If you have a question for Dr. E, you can call us, text us, email us, Instagram message us. All of the ways to contact us will be in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.